Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, with Kurt your host, Sam. Kurt host, Sam. Kurt host, Sam. Kurt Sandvig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's keep the bizarre titles going with bizarre mysteries and a bizarre theme theme song. That's right, everything on this edition will be bizarre and mysterious. How bizarre? Well, well, I'm assuming that you guys are quarantined, you've stocked up on food, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, a pandemic is sweeping the world. I hope you're okay, first of all, but yeah, it's pretty bizarre as is. So I figured I'll give you guys some content to listen to during all that craziness. Hope you're all safe. Hope you're all good. Let's get right on into it with some shout outs. That's right. We have shout outs going out to Aaron, Aaron, ah, monsters, Lauren and David, Alicia, Amber, Andrew, April, Seth, Audra, Austin, Autumn, Bill, Bob, Brandon, Brett, Carolyn, Carrie, Christine, Chuck, Cindy, Cole, Dan, Daniel, Dill, Donald, Dorian, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Ezra, Harvey, Heidi, I, Isabel, J, J Mark, that is, Jade, Jaime, Jason, Jeff, Jeff, Jennifer, Jared, Jerry, Jim, Joe, Joanne, John, Joshua, Juliana, Carrie, Kelly, Kelsey, Kimberly, Kira, Lash, Laura, Laura, Ruth O, Lauren Mangano, Lauren McCune, hey, howdy, hi, happy Monday, Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, oh, I forgot to... Oh, I forgot what this one was. Lokio? Oh, that bums me out. You even sent me a message about it. Hold on. I got to figure out how to say your name and say it right. Say it proud. Giovanni. Welcome, Giovanni. Lorelai, M. Caviero, Martin, Matt, Megan, Mickey, Seth, Milo, Nanashi, Mildog, Nick, Pablo, Paula, Rachel, Reed, Robin, Rosa, Russell, Sarah, Sarah, Sean Bishop, Shelly, Sonny, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, who's in town. Hey, howdy, hi. Tanya, Trey, Veronica, and Will. Thank you, all the patrons out there. Patrons, you got a new episode. Hmm, what is it, Saturday night? You might have a new one coming up very, very soon. Very soon. Okay. Hope you guys are all good. Hope everybody's safe and sound. It's raining out here. It's cold. I got a stitch on my lap. Let's get right on into paranormal news. Paranormal news. A North Queensland woman claimed that she was abducted by aliens who were able to suppress her memories for 40 years, 40 years, until details of the close encounter were finally triggered during last year's Cardwell UFO Festival. That's right. She goes to a UFO festival. Apparently, she's into UFOs. And when she's there, she realizes, uh-oh, I was abducted 40 years ago. 
Crazy, short, little story. Okay, up next, Canada's mysterious lake monster. You guys know him. Ogopogo is what he's called. It's the, uh, it's Canadian's version of the Loch Ness. And this story is a slightly different one from all the Loch Ness stories I've been telling lately. It's basically saying that it's not really a monster. It's a spirit of the lake. And it protects this valley from one end to another. That comes from Pat Raphael from the West Bank First Nation, a member nation of the larger Okanagan Silex Nation Alliance who guided me through the Silex ancestral lands bordering Okanagan Lake. This is from the news reporter, not from me. Uh, he says, as our bus drove south along the water, she explained that while many in Canada know the creature known as Ogopogo, it means the sacred spirit of the lake, but she also pointed out a brown hump of Rattlesnake Island across the water where the spirit is said to dwell. She also used a, she also had us practice saying it. Nope, I'm not even going to try that. She said, before European traders arrived in the valley in 1809, the local indigenous tribe had been living in the area for at least 12,000 years. They had their own laws, justice system, and beliefs. Chief amongst them was the importance of water. So the story goes on to tell the journey of Ogopogo, where it started to peak when there was a million dollar reward for Ogopogo. Thankfully, no one ever captured or killed them. And it goes on to say that Ogopogo is still seen to this day, as you guys well know. Okay, up next in paranormal news, something that shouldn't be too surprising. Sadly, the UFO Festival moves landing date to August. That's right, the city of Edinburgh announced the UFO Festival in Edinburgh, Texas, has been rescheduled until later this year. The festival will now take place on the second week of August. It was previously set for April. Don't be too surprised if anything that you've wanted to go to has been canceled, postponed, or moved. I really am afraid to say that I think the Haunted Souls Bazaar, that it's what's next month, I think that's going to get uh, pushed out. Now, I did get some updates on the other appearance that I'll be making, but they've asked that I don't announce it until May 1st. So May 1st, I will have an announcement for you then. But sadly, the festival will now be taking place, the UFO Festival will now be taking place from August 13th to 15th. The uh, event is put together by the Edinburgh Library and Cultural Arts Department. So, check it out. If you want to go, you got a little bit more time to get over there. Like I said, don't be surprised if everything starts moving. Up next, here's what the 2020 candidates, past and present, have said about UFOs and whether information about them should be declassified. Let me say something very clearly right now. This is not a political post. Well, technically it is, but it is not a political post in the I'm going to tell you who to vote for kind of way. Don't vote for Trump. But what I'm going to say is, let's talk about what the 2020 presidential race, it's heating up. Let's hear what they have to say about UFOs. Bernie Sanders suggested he would release classified information if elected. That's pretty cool. So he was on the uh, podcast with Joe Rogan, and he said, uh, Rogan said, if you found out something about aliens, if you found out something about UFOs, would you let us know? And Sanders said, well, I'll tell you, my wife would demand that I tell you. And Rogan said, is your wife a UFO nut? And he says, no, she's not a UFO nut. She goes, Bernie, what is going on? Do you know? Do you have any access to records? Rogan says, you don't have any access. You'll tell us though, right? You'll let us know though, right? And Sandra says, all right, we'll announce it on the show. How is that? So if you're thinking about maybe possibly voting for Sanders, he said he would release classified information if elected. Trump. Trump says he doesn't believe in UFOs. Amy Klobuchar, however the hell you say her name, said she would declassify information so earnest journalists can dig into it. 
That's fair. Pete Buttigieg, well, he's not even there anymore. He said, humans should always be looking at what's going on around us. Sure, why not? Um, really? That's all the... Oh, you freaking post. Well, sadly, that's all the candidates it talks about. So nothing about Joe Biden or anybody else. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's it. that's it for that story. Let's move on before everybody gets really upset that I even mentioned politics. Okay. Yowie hunters claim... A 10-foot beast stalked Bushland Cave near them. Hold on one second. I got to remove my ad blocker so I can see this. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. The story says the best Yowie audio ever heard because Bigfoot hunters claim a 10-foot beast stalked them into a bushland before it ran into a cave where they recorded a grunting sound. Two men claim they're being stalked by a 3-meter Yowie in Glowworm Tunnel. And that's in uh, New South Wales. Australian Yowie hunters have shared incredible audio the men recorded of the creature in newness in the central tablelands. Sure, why not? In the early hours of March 23rd, captured in the popular Glowworm Tunnel in Wollemi National Park near Lithgow, the mythical beast, which is Australia's version of Bigfoot, can't be seen in the footage, but makes its presence known with a loud, eerie howl. Let's listen to it now. Oh, stupid advertisements, why you fucking up my podcast? Stupid, stupid advertisements, why you fucking up my podcast? Okay, okay. Fun fact, Stitch does not like yaoi calls. Alrighty, so there you go. That was a 24 seconds or so of a Yowie call in a tunnel called the Glowworm Tunnel in Walemi National Park. I'm sure I'm saying all of this wrong. I apologize to my Australian listeners because you guys are awesome. So anyhow, what do you guys think? They said the two men said the creature was trying to conceal itself at the time. However, they managed to see the shape of it, nearly 10 feet tall and four feet across in the chest. It was also making a grunting sound as it was sneaking along behind them, which they didn't manage to capture in time. They were both very frightened and ran two kilometers back to their vehicle. Oh, what'd you guys think? Do you guys think that was a yowie? Do you guys think that there's no way that humans could ever make that sound? Because that's what a lot of people say. I don't know if that part's true, but it was a funky noise nonetheless. Alrighty, we're getting to the end of Paranormal News. Hold on one second. We got a couple more. This one I'm very excited about. For 21 years, millions of people helped a university search for alien life. Now it's time to analyze the results. I'm sure you guys were part of it. I was part of it. That's right. The SETI at Home Project says they'll stop sending new work to the network of volunteers who have been using their computers to search for aliens since 1999. The project is going into hibernation on March 31st according to a post on its website, which said that scientists have reached a point of diminishing returns. I don't like that. Basically, we've analyzed all the data we need for now. The scientists will now focus on studying the results that they've brought in and uh, writing a scientific journal paper on the findings. If you don't know what it was, millions of volunteers around the world downloaded the SETI at Home screensaver, and then anytime your, your computer went into uh, the screensaver mode, it would kick in and it would actually analyze... All of the, fuck, I don't know what you call it, the, uh, all of the footage, if you will, the radio signals that SETI had been bringing in or, or SETI had been listening to. So basically, they were using everybody's computers to try and get together and try and get a, 
a signal, a wow signal, if you will. So, unfortunately, March 31st, the project will stop sending out Newark to its users, but hopefully they're going to find something from what they've already gotten back. It was a very cool project. I always really enjoyed it. I love when science in, and uh, the paranormal get together. It's the best way possible we're ever going to prove something exists. Okay, finally, in paranormal news, does this Algerian meteorite hold proof of extraterrestrial life? Scientists may have found one protein, one of the building blocks of life, inside a meteorite that spent potentially millions of years hurtling through the cold vacuum of space. The first time discovery, if confirmed, could have profound implications for our understanding of how and where life come from, and could add a wrinkle to humanity's widening hunt for extraterrestrial life. If the meteorite did indeed arrive on Earth with a payload of protein, it could bolster the notion that life, or at least the process that resulted in life, could exist across the vast expanse of the universe and not just on our own planet. Protein is a good indicator of possible life, says Gilbert Levin, a former NASA scientist who helped lead an early search for life on Mars. I thought that was really cool. I love it, again, when science is used to try and prove the trying to prove extraterrestrials or trying to prove paranormal, whatever you want to call it. I really, really like it when science gets involved. And like I said a minute ago, and like I've said a million times, that's what's going to lead us to proof. Proof of extraterrestrials, proof of the paranormal, whatever. That's what's going to lead us to proof. All righty, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with some mysteries, but not any old mysteries, just the bizarre ones. We are back. Self-quarantined. Stitch on my lap. Hand sanitizer next to me. The world collapsing around us. But before we get into the bizarre, I wanted to tell you about something that's effing amazing. A friend of mine, on her own will, made a don't fucking shoot Bigfoot patch. That is incredible. She surprised it with me over the weekend. I couldn't get enough of it. I, am, I love the design. I love everything about it. She is selling them. So you guys can head on over to Etsy.com and look for 8-Bit Spock. She does incredible patches, and I mean absolutely incredible patches, but there's one called Paranormal Almanac, Don't Fucking Shoot Bigfoot, 8-Bit Spock, 8, the number 8, B-I-T-S-P-O-C-K. For only $10.99, you can get the official Don't Fucking Shoot Bigfoot patch that I love. I, I can't wait to put it on a jacket. I actually ordered a jacket. should be arriving soon that I'm going to put it on. I can't wait. Please support local artists, especially right now. When the world's going to hell, everything's shutting down. Support the local artists like her. All righty. Where was I? Oh, yeah. We're about to get bizarre. How bizarre? Well, this bizarre. From 1915 to 1926, five million people found themselves frozen. Completely unable to move? completely unable to speak. They were dubbed living statues. I'm going to get this wrong, so let's see if I do it right. It was called encephalitis lethargica. Oh, I think I got it right. Or the sleeping sickness. It was first in Europe, then quickly spread around the world, reaching epidemic levels in North America, Europe, and India in just two years. That's right. By 1919, it was at epidemic levels. Sadly, 
Not everyone survived it. In fact, about a third of the people that were living statues died. Of the ones that did survive, nearly half of them remained trapped in their frozen bodies, fully aware of their surroundings. That sucks. Some did have limited speech, eye motion, and even laughter. That's right. There were some of them that were a living statue, except they could laugh. That's creepy as hell. But most remain completely frozen for hours, days, weeks, or even years. Here's how it was described. They would be conscious and aware, yet not fully awake. They would sit motionless and speechless all day in their chairs, totally lacking energy, impetus, initiative, motive, appetite, effect, or desire. That sounds like uh, one of my friend's kids. Uh, they registered what went on about them without active attention and with profound indifference. They neither conveyed nor felt the feeling of life. They were insubstantial as ghosts and as passive as zombies. Okay, that's the bizarre part. Now comes the mystery part. No one knows what the cause is. Now, there are a few theories like brain inflammation triggered by a rare strain of uh, streptococcus. That's the bacteria responsible for many sore throats each year. Science's best guess is that the bacteria mutated, provoking the immune system to attack the brain itself, leaving the victim helpless. And no one knows why the pandemic happened or why it was almost completely disappeared by, 20, by 1927. I almost said by 2027. By 1927. Basically, it ended as abruptly and mysteriously as it first appeared. The Great Encephalitis Pandemic coincided with the 1918 Influenza Pandemic, so it's thought that this might have had something to do with it, but that doesn't explain where it went or why it popped back up in Europe in the 1950s or in China recently when a 12-year-old girl was frozen for five weeks. So it does seem like small cases of this are still out there. So ask yourself, are you lazy? Or just about to become a living statue? Probably just lazy. For me, it's just lazy. Alrighty, let me take a quick drink of tea for the next one. Up next is a bit of a different one. I think this might be the first time I have ever mentioned vampires on Paranormal Almanac. Which is just crazy to me. How have I not done an entire episode on vampires yet? Come on, Kurt. But I, you know what? I blame me. It's a, That's on me. I'll take that one. So, yeah. Here's the first, I think, vampire story on Paranormal Almanac. And if I'm wrong, well, I should listen to this podcast more, I guess. Oh, before I begin, this is a bit of a graphic one involving a sex worker. So if you have kids listening to this, first, why? Second, go buy them a Paranormal Almanac kids t-shirt because they're available at paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com. Third, maybe you skip this one if they're listening because, you know... Frankly, you should. All right, so if you skip ahead probably about two minutes, you should be fine. Or don't. I mean, they're your kids. I don't care. Okay, no more kids listening? Let's do this one. This one happened in 1932 when 32-year-old sex worker Lily Lindstrom lived alone in a neighborhood in Atlas, which is in uh, Stockholm. So her downstairs neighbor, her friend, was also a sex worker, and she was also Lily's confidant. Her name was Minnie Jansen. Now, Minnie was the last person to see Lily alive. 
When Minnie hadn't seen Lily in a while, which was unusual, she called the authorities to do a wellness check because, again, it was 1932, she lived alone, was a sex worker working out of her apartment. So, Minnie told the authorities that she hadn't seen Lily for a few days, and the last time she saw her was when she came by asking for a condom, which Minnie said was a fairly regular occurrence. So, the police start banging on Lily's door, and there's no answer. They get the key, they enter the room, to find Lily face down on the bed, completely nude. Her clothes were neatly folded on a nearby chair, and there was one other thing. Again, no kids listening, please. There was one other thing found that was unusual. A used condom was sticking out of her anus. Lily appeared to have died from blunt force trauma to the back of her head. Now here's where it gets really bizarre. Nearly all of Lily's blood was drained from her body. No blood was found at the scene of the crime. The police said it was as if she was drained cleanly. Police found traces of saliva on her face and neck, and a blood-stained ladle was also found in the room, which police thought was used to drink her blood. Now, the press got wind of the story, and they called it the Atlas Vampire, and word spread that there might be a vampire killing sex workers in the area. Police determined that Lily had been dead for a few days, and she was probably killed the night she asked Minnie for a condom. Men were brought in for questioning by the police, though none were viable suspects and all were released. Now, if you want to see the evidence for yourself, you can. Just go over to the Swedish Police Museum, where they still have items from this case on display, like hair samples, saliva samples, and old condoms. Kurt here, I seriously wonder if any of these can be DNA tested. I can't find anything online about them trying to DNA test these objects, I don't know if it's maybe it's too old and they can't test it, but I thought they could still test it. It was 1932. It's not like it was the 1500s or anything. I really think they can do DNA testing on there, and I'm really confused why it's not, why it hasn't happened, or if it has happened, why it hasn't been really written about. So if you do go to that museum, please ask them for me. Alrighty, there you go. Sex worker, completely drained of blood, but not just any normal vampire. This vampire used a ladle. Bizarre, right? Mystery? Yes. Okay, from there let's jump to 2012 when Gloria Anderson wrote a blog post about her experiences living in that very same building. That's right, the very same building where Lily was murdered in 1932. I'm gonna read it to you now. Not all of it, don't worry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a lot of it though. Uh, bu -bu -bu -bum. You might think that coming from Transylvania, I'm obsessed with vamp. I'm obsessed with vampire stories. Well, no, absolutely not. I've just discovered now, after exactly four years after I had moved to Sankt Eriksplan 9, that I lived in the same building where a violent murder happened in the 1930s. Now, I don't live in that building anymore. I moved out in 2008. However, it feels strange even now to think about it. How did I find out? My husband asked me early. My husband asked me one early morning during breakfast. Gloria, what was the rental Sankt Eriksplan 9 or 11 before we moved to where we live now? I was surprised he would ask a question like this out of the blue. I said, why do you ask? And he showed her the documentary all about Lily. We realized that the murder took place in the same building we lived in, in the exact type of apartment we used to rent, but in the other wing of the building. So somehow the mirror image of our flat with the exact same position, the window facing the road, the same construction plan, 
That's why my husband wasn't sure where we had 9 or 11, because on the pictures they showed in the documentary, it reminded very much of our old flat at number 9. Uh, ba -bum -bum -bum. You already heard the story, let me go past all of that. Here we go. Strange thing, we had our laundry room in that wing, as the building was connected through a corridor. Now when I look back, I must say I always had an uncomfortable feeling when going to the laundry room. I don't even believe in spooks or anything like that. Maybe it's just that I'm trying to retroactively make up an interesting story now that I know the truth. But I did not like that wing of the building at all back then. So there you have it. Someone randomly finding out that they lived in a building where a vampire drank someone's blood from a ladle. Cool little mystery, right? Alrighty, moving on. Let's talk about another woman. This one named Gloria Ramirez. She's also known as the Toxic Lady or the Toxic Woman. Now, this one happened at about 8.15 p.m., February 19, 1994, when Gloria, who was suffering from advanced cervical cancer, was brought into the ER of Riverside General Hospital. The paramedic said she was awake but seemed confused. She was taking shallow, rapid breaths, and her blood pressure was dropping fast. The doctors injected her with diazepam. Nope, I'm not going to get any of these right. Midazolam, sure, midazolam, and lorazepam, eh, I did all right, to sedate her. And then they tried to stabilize her using one of those bags that give her oxygen, you know, like the bag and, you know, they shove it down your throat and so you can get oxygen, whatever the hell those things are called. I'm going to guess it's called a bag because I don't know. But this didn't seem to work at all. So they, they tried to defibrillate her heart while a registered nurse named Susan Kane swabbed Ramirez's right arm and attached a syringe to an IV bag. Now, as soon as the syringe filled with blood, Susan noticed a chemical smell. She handed the syringe to another nurse and they too noticed the smell immediately. They said it smelled chemically. Now, the other people there started to notice an ammonia-like odor. And when they looked at her chest, they noticed an oily sheen covering Gloria's body. And they also noticed a fruity, garlic-like odor that they thought was coming from her mouth. One of the nurses also noticed an unusual manila-colored particle floating in the blood in the syringe. Actually, particles. Floating in the blood in the syringe itself. This is when everything goes to shit quickly. Nurse Susan Kane starts not feeling well and goes out to leave and goes to leave, but collapses before she can get out the door. She said her face was burning... So they throw her on a stretcher and they take her to another examining room. The next nurse that smelled the syringe starts feeling ill too. She leaves the trauma room and sits down at a nurse's desk. A staff member notices her and asks her if she's okay, but before the nurse can reply, boom, she passes out. Back in the room with Gloria, another nurse goes down. This nurse named Welch said, I remember hearing someone scream, then I woke up. I couldn't control the movements of my limbs. The previous nurses that collapsed were having the same issues and breathing issues too. Now it's really starting to spread to other hospital staff. They start feeling ill too, so hospital administrators declare an internal hospital emergency. The doctor who was in charge of Gloria ordered the staff to evacuate all emergency room patients to the parking lot outside the hospital. Only a skeleton crew stayed behind to help him and try to save Gloria, who was declining rapidly. They repeatedly administered electric shocks and drugs to Gloria, but sadly, at 8.50 p.m., Gloria was pronounced dead. That's right, in 45 minutes, all of this has happened. 
Two staff members moved the body to an isolation anteroom adjacent to Trauma 1. Outside, more and more people got sicker. The staff were complaining about their faces burning. They were throwing up. Some were convulsing. In all, 23 of the 37 emergency room staff members there that night experienced at least one of the symptoms. Five were hospitalized for the rest of the night. Some of that staff got so bad, they stayed in the hospital for weeks, suffering from a variety of symptoms like apnea, hepatitis, pancreatitis, and a vascular necrosis, which is a condition in which the bone tissue is starved of blood and begins to die. This was serious, and they still had one issue. Gloria's body. The hazmat crew was called in, and they couldn't find anything. So they alerted the coroners to put on hazmat suits for the autopsy itself. Now, the autopsy took 90 minutes, and they left with blood and hair samples, and Gloria's body was taken in an aluminum coffin. The results were they couldn't find anything unusual with the body. The samples were sent to the Forensic Science Center at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, who also concluded nothing in her body should have caused that scenario to happen at all. Then, California's Department of Health and Human Services were called in, and they examined everything. Their official report stated that the hospital staff most likely experienced an outbreak of mass sociogenic illness, perhaps triggered by an odor. Basically, what they were saying was, they'd been taken down by stress and anxiety, and then they noted that it was the women that suffered the symptoms first, and that led to mass hysteria amongst them. Bullshit. So, they released this quote-unquote bullshit official report, and it was met with a $6 million lawsuit from one of the nurses. I'm not exactly sure what happened with that lawsuit, but I hope to hell she won. Because she deserves it. Okay, so bullshit report aside, let's get to some of the theories, starting with the most bizarre. If you haven't guessed it, the most bizarre one is... Alien abduction. Yup. Gloria was an abductee, and they did something to her which made her toxic. Except there's no proof for any of that. She never talked about aliens, or UFOs, or ever being abducted at all. They didn't find anything on her that was weird or alien, besides the, you know, the chemicals that almost killed everybody. But... Nothing about aliens or extraterrestrials. So, let's keep going. Now, there's a theory proposed by the New Times of L.A. that said that Gloria Ramirez could have been exposed to a precursor chemical, such as methylamine, used in the production of methamphetamines. Riverside County had been reported as one of the largest methamphetamine distribution points in the U.S. And as such, the theory says that the hospital workers involved in the production of methamphetamine were smuggling precursor chemicals in IV bags that one of them could have mistakenly been given to Gloria. The key element in support of this theory is that methamphetamine precursors have a distinct ammonia smell. Sure, I don't know. I, it's a mystery. We won't know. I, I'm telling you now, we don't know. We're not going to find out by the end of this podcast. Okay, so there is more evidence to support that one, but a lot of scientists say it still doesn't add up. Another theory is that Gloria was self-medicating for her cervical cancer and she made or got some kind of tincture that she coated herself with and drank. 
And that reacted to the real medicine the ER staff tried to give her. Again, makes some sense. I kind of can get behind that theory. But no one's been able to recreate it yet. Finally, some people think that a bizarre combo of the stuff that she had taken herself, combined with the pure oxygen from the oxygen mask, plus the meds she was given, and... When they tried to resuscitate her, the electric shock from the defibrillator made dimethyl sulfone. Sulfone? Sure, whatever. Made some gnarly chemical. Basically, it all added up to make the nerve gas dimethyl sulfate. Again, it's a mystery. No one knows. But I'm glad it hasn't happened since. Bizarre, right? I'm telling you. Some weird fucking shit. Okay. Let's move on to one with less nurses collapsing. It's known as room 428. Why? Because it was between room 427 and 429. But that's not the bizarre mystery part of it. In fact, there isn't one. That's right. A debunk of a bizarre mystery is about to happen. First, let me tell you the main version of the tale of room 428. There was a student resident of Ohio University's Wilson Hall who practiced so-called dark worship. And one night went up to the ridges, the old insane asylum, don't worry, I'll get to that, to find the infamous stain. What stain? Oh, the stain is the mark of a patient at the old Athens asylum who had disappeared for a full six weeks before being found in an abandoned wing. And now, even after the stain is cleaned, it reappears right on the spot they died. So, the Wilson Hall student went to the ridges and touched the stain. That night, when she returned to the dormitory, to room 428, she had become possessed, and boom, she takes her own life. The fourth floor room where she stayed became haunted, so the university is closed off. Let me pause right here to say, it's bullshit. Let me debunk some of it for you right now. Yeah, there are a ton of paranormal stories on the campus. Things flying off shelves, footsteps, cold spots, tons of stories. That part is true. But a bunch of sites that have proof the story is true say crap like this. Room 428 is located in Wilson Hall, and Wilson Hall is in the center of five cemeteries. And when you draw lines connecting them, you get a pentagram. Well, kind of. If you ignore the other 10-plus cemeteries around Ohio University, and you carefully choose which cemeteries you want to use. That's right. I did this. I did manage to draw a pentagram... But, even after I did all of that, Wilson Hall doesn't fall in the center of the pentagram which you have to really try to make to begin with. The closest thing I could find in the center of the pentagram is a bowling alley, which I looked into. It's not mysterious at all, but they do have a quarter mania every Monday night from 6 to 11 p.m. So check it out for a great deal on food and bowling. All right, where was I? I forgot the point that I was making. Ah, yes, room 428. Some other BS from other sites say that Wilson Hall was built on top of Athens Lunatic Asylum. Nope. No, it wasn't. Real easy to debunk that one. Athens Lunatic Asylum, the ridges that I talked about earlier, is 1.3 miles away, and it was real easy for me to find that out. How about this one? Room 428 in Ohio University is sealed off from the students. No, it's just not. That's bullshit because students go in there regularly. You can find photos. You can find videos. 
of idiot students going in there and scaring themselves. They go on to say that it was sealed off shortly after the death of the woman who practiced the occult in this room, and that the door of the room is said to depict the face of a demon, even after the entire thing was replaced. Nope. No, it doesn't. It just doesn't. I found a picture of the door, and it looks like a door. That's it. There's no demon nothing that made me for a second go, eh, I guess that could be a demon. Nope, nothing. There's a video I'm going to tell you about in just a minute. You can see the door on the video, and you can see how much this guy has to be like, see if you look at like this part of the wood here, and then, then like like that, that knot, it's like the demon's eyes, and everybody's like, oh my god, I can see the demon's eye. No, it's stupid. Fuck that. Okay, there is so much crap to sift through. The room isn't boarded or sealed off. I can find a lot of people that have gone to Ohio University that have been in that room. So what's in it? What's in that room? Demons? Satan? Some old person from an insane asylum? Nope. It's a boiler room. Yep. The reason that no students live in that room is because it's a boiler room. Again, you don't have to take my word for it. You can watch a bunch of idiots get scared of a boiler room. I'll post a YouTube video on the Facebook page from a show called Satan's Dorm, The Scariest Places on Earth. It's dumb. It's really dumb. I've seen a lot of dumb videos. Hell, I've made a lot of dumb videos. This is a dumb video. All right, so there does seem to be a kernel of truth that started this whole story. And that's the disappearance of patient Margaret Schilling on December 1st, 1978. She was found January 12th, 1979. Boom, that's it. She didn't commit suicide. She just disappeared for a bit. This happened a full three years after the supposed suicide in Wilson Hall. Also, there was no suicide in Wilson Hall that I could find. Not around the time that the legend has, anyway. There might have been a, you know, like a sad student that killed themselves somewhere down the line. But guess what? That's probably every dorm in every college, sadly. Anyhow, there was a student who set up the altar, in quotes, on her fourth floor room, and she was named Debbie Ralph Southall. Southall? Whatever, doesn't matter. She was interviewed by the Post several years after her own suicide is supposed to have taken place. So again, no suicide and actually no altar either because she said, oh, I had a red desk covered with a sheet and some candles. She denied practicing witchcraft and said she had merely been curious about stories of supernatural occurrences reported on the fourth floor that she had heard about when she was there. She basically just said, I was very curious about parapsychology. The altar was for my own meditation. She never reported visiting that asylum ever. Again, the Wilson Hall story seems to have been started by alumni in a 1990s TV program called, oh my God, The Scariest Places on Earth. I just talked about that one. What do you know? It was for a crappy TV show, and it's not real. Okay, enough of that nonsense. 
The next one is a cool one that hasn't been explained. Ah, that's just dumb. Of course it hasn't been explained. It's bizarre mysteries, Kurt. That was a stupid... I'm sorry. That was me again. That's on me. Sorry, Stitch. Sorry. You okay, buddy? Okay, so where were we? Um, up next, it comes to us from Cleveland, Tennessee. Apparently there's a Cleveland, Tennessee in Cleveland, Ohio. Not related. Uh, it comes to us from Cleveland, Tennessee at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Well, actually just behind it because the mausoleum behind St. Luke's Episcopal Church in a mausoleum for Nina Craig Miles, who sadly died when she was just seven years old on October 18th, 1871, when she was in a carriage accident. It seems that the carriage was steered in front of an oncoming train and she was killed. Now, depending where you get your info, it seems like little old Nina, seems like little Nina was steering the carriage and her grandpa, who was thrown clear of the accident, survived. So her dad, John, built her a beautiful church, mausoleum, and tomb. The tomb was built out of white Carrera marble from Italy, and it featured four-foot-thick walls topped with a marble spire and cross. It was truly the best money could buy. On it is written, born August 5th, 1864. Nina, daughter of M. Adelia and John H. E. Craig Miles, fell asleep October 18th, 1871. A legal document record in the 1900-1901 edition of the Southwestern Reporter which recorded decisions of the Tennessee Supreme Court stated that October 18, 1871, Nina Craig Miles, then about seven years of age, the only child and daughter then living of respondent and the testator, was accidentally killed, was accidentally killed, and in her memory, the testator, the testator, whatever, and respondent in 1872 erected a church to wit, St. Luke's Memorial Episcopal Church in said town of Cleveland. And two or three years later, constructed a marble mausoleum for the purpose of containing the remains of their child and of themselves after their death. Said the two structure costing between $40,000 and $50,000 in 1871. That's a whole lot of money now and even more money back then. Okay, so fast forward to her internment. Her ashes are placed inside the mausoleum and it's closed up. As soon as it's closed up though, Red spots started to appear on the mausoleum entrance marble, right above the door, where there were none. Again, this was the top highest quality marble that can be bought, white marble. But right above the door, as soon as they closed it up after putting her ashes in there, red streaks or spots or smears or whatever you want to call them started to appear. Obviously, people were called in to clean it, but no matter how they tried to clean it, the red spot streaks, whatever you want to call it, are still there. I'm going to add a picture of the mausoleum to the Facebook page, and I got to say, it is really strange looking. It doesn't look like rust to me, and depending where you get your info, many sites say the stained marble blocks were replaced several times, but the red stains always return. Some say that each time a family member was interred, the red marks got darker. Also, there are sightings of a little girl in 1800s attire playing in the area seen all the time. But that's a different story. So there you go. I'll show you the photos. You tell me what you think. Do you think it's rust or do you think it's 
water stains or something in the waters or hard water or whatever you think it is. You tell me what you think it is. I gotta say, looks kind of bizarre. Okay, this next one comes from August 20th, 1966, when a young man was flying a kite on Vintum Hill in a suburb of Rio de Janeiro. As he's flying the kite, he notices two men lying up the hill. He goes up, I assume still flying his kite, when he sees the men are both dead lying there in the grass. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, I couldn't find out what happened to the kite, so we'll probably never know, okay? I'm... Spoiler. Anyhow, so he calls the police who weren't able to reach the bodies until the following day due to rough terrain. Which is odd because some random kite-flying dude seemed to get up that hill just fine, but that's what every source says. So, there you go. Apparently, they finally get up the hill the next day, and then, and when they get to the top, I assume all sweaty and out of breath, they see two men stretched out side by side, dressed in matching formal suits, covered by raincoats, and both wearing lead masks. Now, when I first heard this story, I pictured, like, lead masks of their faces or, like, you know, like, man in the iron mask, like, that kind of shit. It really wasn't. From what I can find, they weren't really masks at all. They were more like lead sunglasses or lead blindfolds, really. So, the the term, the lead mask case, it's kind of misleading. But anyhow, they identify the men as Manuel Pereira de Cruz and Miguel Jose Viana, Alongside their bodies, authorities found a water bottle, two wet towels, and a notebook. The notebook contained list of parts. That's it. Don't believe other BS sites who say it was a coded notebook. And if you uncode or decode all of the parts, you're going to get some weird, grand, extraterrestrial conspiracy. No. The notebook contained a list of parts and other information related to their occupations as, as electronic technicians. One page, though, was different. It contained cryptic instructions that, as far as I can tell, the best translation I could find say, 1630 hours, be at the specified location. 1830 hours, ingest capsules. After the effect, protect metals, await signal mask. I'm sure that's not the best, but that's best I could find. Anyhow, toxicology reports were not run on the bodies, so we'll never know what they ingested. But a little investigating by the local press determined that the men were, quote, scientific spiritualists, which was a local paranormal cult. Allegedly. I'll say allegedly be on the safe side. It appears that another technician had died four years earlier, and guess where, I assume not the police, found him? Atop another hill just like this hill. And yep, he was wearing a lead mask blindfoldy thingy too. A friend of the men came forward and said that both were attempting to contact extraterrestrials and ghosts, and they had built a device or a contraption to do this, but I couldn't find any photos of the contraption, so I don't know where the contraption ever went to. Anyhow, the police checked out their homes and found tools and the lead to make the masks, and a book that contained highlighted passages about, quote, the intense luminosity of the entities they hope to reach. Now, many people think this is why they needed the lead masks. These intense luminosities of the entities they were trying to reach 
They needed the lead masks to survive it. Now, the friend said the men would take psychedelic drugs to assist them in the communication with the aliens. But get this, a local newspaper ran a story that the day the men died, a nearby resident claimed to see a round orange UFO. Yep, hovering over that hill. Bizarre, right? I don't know. Okay, moving on. The last story for this edition is about Minnie and William Winston. And it took place in 1987. Who, for 22 years, they lived in a six-room red brick home that they rented. They had been there for 22 years. That's very important. Now, the red brick home was at the corner of Fountain Drive and Morris Street in southwest Atlanta. So, and been there for a long while, but on September 8th, Minnie, who is 77 at the time, got out of the shower and found splotches of blood all over the bathroom floor. Now, she thought maybe something had happened to her husband, but when she found him, he was asleep in bed perfectly fine. So she wakes him and tells him to come and see the blood-splotched bathroom. That's hard to say. Come and see the blood-splotched bathroom. Which, I don't care how long you've been married to someone, you never want to hear that sentence. You never want to be woke up from a sound sleep by your partner saying, hey, come and see the blood-splotched bathroom. Anyhow, he gets up and checks it out, and sure enough, there were blood splotches ranging in size from a dime to a silver dollar on the floor on the lower walls, all around the bathroom. Then, also the bedroom. Then the kitchen. Then the basement. And in every freaking hall. They even found blood under the TV. And this is, the old, you know, remember, this is 1987. They're not thin little TVs. They were big honking TVs. It was under the TV. And they even found blood in the crawl spaces of the basement. I mean, this blood was everywhere. Rightfully so, they called the police and homicide detective Steve Cartwright came and sure enough, he saw blood everywhere. And he immediately shot Minnie and William. Oh, wait, no, that's not. He immediately said that in his 10 years of service, I have never seen anything like this. He called it an extremely strange situation. His partner said, I'm guessing it was an animal. Hoped that's all it was, but they couldn't find any animals or any explanation as why a wounded animal was running from room to room, bleeding everywhere, under the TV, in the crawl spaces, every hallway, in a bathroom where Minnie's taking a shower. Nothing. They could not figure it out. So, those two policemen, they say, Oh, I, I know what it was. It's from William's dialysis machine. Yep, case closed. I mean, I never met the man, but how wrong was William using his dialysis machine to make blood spray over the entire house? Well, since that was a stupid explanation and no one could figure out just what had happened, word got out. And the local news reported the story. So, of course, people from all over came to see the blood-stained house of Atlanta. I'm sure I have listeners. I know I have listeners in Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta listeners... How bored are people in Atlanta that you want to go see a blood-stained house? Now, that's weird. Now, a few days later, they get the blood work back, and it was determined the blood type was type O. Just so you guys know, 
William was type A, so nope, not him. Minnie? Also type A, so nope, not her. They ran the blood, but didn't get any matches in the database. Homicide Commander Lieutenant Horace Walker said, We will continue a routine investigation, and if we find out that no crime was committed, we're through with it. Detective Price said, We're still trying to figure out where the blood came from. We plan to check with the state crime lab today about other possibilities. Crime Lab Director Larry Howard. Crime Lab Director... Ooh, this is a hard one. Crime Lab Director Larry Howard stated that he could have learned much more. Sex, race, traces of drugs, or alcohol more easily from fresh blood. But that it looked like the blood was projected out of something or shaken off of something. Wow, give Larry a promotion. Blood was projected out of or shaken off something? Nice work, Columbo. Okay, so nationwide news coverage started, and the poor Winstons were bothered day and night by people calling them, asking about the bleeding house. Mrs. Winston said, The phone rang all night. I'm fed up with it. I'm tired of all these people asking me questions. People are coming out here to see it, and it's troubling us. The Homicide Bureau and State Crime Lab never were able to identify the source of blood, but they did say there was no evidence of a hoax, no evidence of a crime, and to this day, no one knows what happened in that house that night. Yeah, two people who'd been there for 22 years, in their 70s, their late 70s, by the way, we're going to have some fun and squirt blood all over their house for no reason. They didn't want the fame. They didn't want the press. They didn't want the people coming there. They were freaked out and they called the police. That's not a hoax. That's bullshit. But again, no one knows what caused the blood-stained house of Atlanta. All right, so that about does it for this edition. Bizarre, right? Told you. All right, question time. What would you do if you got out of the shower and there were blood splotches all over your house? What would you do if a toxic woman was dying in front of you? Would you help her? When was the last time you flew a kite? What's the weirdest vampire story you've ever heard? These questions and many more will not be answered on this edition of Paranormal Almanac.
Sagen so, Nello, wie bleibt nur an der Schiene Zeit. 